In 1924, the state of Texas turned away from hanging their death sentence inmates to the new, quicker and quote unquote more humane electric chair. Old Sparky, as it was lovingly referred, waited at the Texas State Penitentiary in a small room at the end of a long hallway of nine inmate cells. On the other side of the green door, the small room was divided with witness seats on one side. And old Sparky sitting center stage on the other. The inmate could choose whether to allow the press or not. Despite these new, more discreet, and humane policies, inmates were still not a fan and looked for ways to avoid the green door at all costs. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages. Drop into the rabbit hole or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. This is part two of the Santa Bandit. If you missed last week, you might want to listen to that first. I would hate to spoil the ending for you. But here in this episode, we pick up where we left off. The three of the surviving Santa gang, including Santa himself, are now facing trial for their crimes. They had robbed the first national bank in Cisco, Texas, but things went terribly awry, and now it was time to suffer the consequences of their actions. Well. <sighs> As much as we could hope for. On January twenty third, nineteen twenty eight, Marshall Ratliff would be the first to go on trial. He pled not guilty. He was seen smirky and confident throughout the trial, and even seemed unfazed when witness after witness went to the stand to point the finger at Santa. Side note: the little girl Laverne, remember her? She was the one who was able to ID Marshall as Santa, and she was also the one who alerted police when they were left behind in the car. She was extremely brave, but once the adrenaline wore off, she was unable to sleep at night. She was so traumatized by the event when it came time to point out Santa in the courtroom, she couldn't do it. Years later, she would tell a reporter that she had to go to court so many times for the several trials of the three men that she flunked seventh grade. She would also confess to years and years of nightmares, what we would now recognize as PTSD. His mother, Rilla Carter, stayed by his side throughout the entire trial. She could be seen taking notes and conferring with the attorney. She made sure Marshall had a fresh haircut and a dapper suit for his appearances in court. Throughout the trial, no one could actually remember Marshall firing a gun, which is no surprise since there was so many people firing guns around every turn. But this may have been his saving grace. Worth smirking about? I don't think so. It was a few days later that the jailer discovered a loose piece of wall panel. And a hidden iron bar in the cell of Ratliff and Helms. In his mind, the trial didn't matter. He thought he was going to escape, but he did not escape. Security was increased, and the trial continued. Mrs. Heron, the landlady, was brought in to testify 
as she was held as an accessory after the fact to murder. But when her 15-year-old daughter Marion took the stand to testify in her defense, the charges were dropped against her. She was guilty of sewing the Santa suit, but it wasn't her fault Marshall took it. On the 27th of January, 1928, Marshall Ratliff, the Santa mastermind, was sentenced to 99 years in prison. He did not seem ruffled by the sentence. Maybe he had another escape up his sleeve. But by the end of his second trial, on March 30th, for the murder charges, even though no one actually watched him fire a gun, he was found guilty of murder. The death penalty was handed down, and, I guess just in case that didn't hold, he was tacked with another additional 198 years in prison. Henry's trial came next on February 20th, 1928, and he decided to plead not guilty, bolstered by Marshall's sentence of only, only, 99 years. They hadn't had Ratcliffe's second trial as yet. The courts were not so lenient with him. If Ratliff seemed smug, Henry seemed brooding. He glared at each of the many witnesses who had no problem telling the jury about his anger issues and throwing Grandma from the front seat. The defense attorney even brought his wife and five children into the courtroom to hopefully elicit some sympathy. The wife was pregnant, after all, but if anything, all the sympathy the court could muster went to the wife. Henry was given the death penalty. Smug didn't work. Brooding didn't work. Robert Hill decided to go for empathy. On March 19, 1928, at his trial, he pled guilty and owned up to everything. He bled his entire tragic life story of institutions and reformatories instead of loving households all over the courtroom, making it an undeniable case. Because of his upbringing, he became, quote, the boy who never had a chance, end quote. What did they expect to happen? He had the courtroom in the palm of his hand. Just to make sure of the timeline, his attorney made sure that witnesses stressed that Hill was the last of the bandits out the door after the robbery, which meant he was not responsible for either of the police officers' lives that were lost. The jury took only 40 more minutes of the people's time when they came back to with the verdict of guilty, sentencing him to 99 years in jail. Side note, it was later discovered that Hill agreed to roll on his co-conspirators to have the death penalty removed. Boyce House would write a few years later, quote, at a solemn scene, Hill was sentenced and promised his attorney, who had been appointed by the court and served without pay, that he would make a model prisoner. Church workers visited Hill at the county jail. He professed religion and desired to be baptized. End quote. Yeah. Hold on to that thought. July 6, 1929, Dallas Morning News reports, quote, Sentence passed on man convicted of Cisco bank robbery. Henry Helms was sentenced Friday by District Attorney George L. Davenport to die in the electric chair at Huntsville Friday, September 6th. L. L. Clearly, Helms' attorney, said a plea of insanity might be filed. 
Helms was convinced of robbery with firearms. Of the four participants in the robbery, Marshall Ratliff, who masqueraded as Santa Claus, drew a death sentence and is awaiting execution at Huntsville. Robert Hill, who pleaded guilty to robbery with firearms, is serving a 99-year sentence. L. E. Davis, the fourth man in the party, died Christmas Day, 1927, of wounds received at the time of the robbery. All the money was recovered. End quote. Both Helms and Ratliff appealed their death sentences, and both were denied. The Abilene reporter on April 29, 1928, would lead with, quote, Prison gates close on bandit case chapter. Marshal Ratliff taken to Huntsville Prison early Saturday by officers, end quote. Hello, hello. Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. Soon after being taken to the penitentiary, Robert Hill escaped. The model prisoner plan was discarded quickly. He only tasted freedom for a couple hours before he was recaptured, but that was just enough to inspire him to try again. And again. So he did. A short time later, he escaped again, this time with inmate Bob Silver, who managed to avoid capture only slightly longer than Hill. And then (laughs) he did it again. At this point, I'm not sure who should get the bigger scolding, the prisoner for attempting and succeeding in escape after escape, or the jail for allowing it to happen multiple times. Obviously, that's an indication that there are some flaws in the system somewhere. Hill remained free for several weeks, and they worried he wouldn't be recaught, but they needlessly worried. He was caught once again and decided to behave himself. As for the others, according to the tiny print in the Texas death sentence bylaws, there was a tiny little loophole to the death penalty. You couldn't execute an inmate if they proved to be insane. Even if they didn't use the insanity plea while on trial, if the inmate suddenly went insane, perhaps not being able to handle the verdict, perhaps the small 60-square-foot accommodations made them go mad, or maybe they ate the chipped paint, whatever the reason. If their attorney was able to prove that their client had gone insane prior to their execution date, 
the inmate would be removed from the execution hall. The attorney of inmate Harry Leahy was all over it. Soon, Leahy stopped eating and started acting strange, not speaking in complete sentences, mumbling to himself. His family created a petition to have others sign in order to get the poor disillusioned inmate a new sanity hearing. The other prisoners on death row watched the proceedings with rapt attention. When the day for his hearing came and went, Leahy had failed to prove that he was insane and, miraculously, his appetite returned. According to author Tui Sniper in her book covering the Santa Caper, she claims the other inmates grilled Harry for all the details and wanted to know what went wrong. She'd say Harry reportedly told them, quote, I just couldn't act the part. They finally got to me. I couldn't keep going. End quote. Challenge accepted. Henry Helms allegedly replied, quote, Well, watch me put it over. End quote. According to the Texas Monthly in 2020, quote, The question has always been how to limit the defense so that every criminal can't claim to have acted under the spell of a delusion and go free. By the middle of the 19th century, a test was in place that, in some form, prevails today. A defendant was insane if he did not know the nature and quality of his act, or if he did know it, he did not know it was wrong. Around 50 years ago, there was a swing away from the right-wrong test toward a mental illness standard. If a criminal act was the result of a mental disease or defect, even an irresistible impulse, the defendant was not guilty by reason of insanity. End quote but that was from recent sightings, and you're about to find out why. Leahy was taken through the one-way green door and was executed. You could say it drove Henry Helms insane. Helms' execution was set for September 6th, and it was August when Leahy was executed, so Helms had no time to waste. Suddenly, he refused to be touched. He stopped shaving and refused to bathe or even get haircuts. He began shredding paper into bits and littering it all over his cell. He began repeating phrases in a creepy, sing-song way, over and over again. The guards suspected his ruse, but gave him props at his commitment. They would write in his report, quote, Subject is feigning insanity and refuses to speak. End quote. The jailers would say he would keep up the chanting even when he thought no one was around. Once you were numbed by his repetitive sing song, he would shout out, Hey! or Aye aye, Captain! just to make sure you were awake and paying attention. It wasn't until he began shredding the Bible his wife got for him that the guards began to pay attention. Shredding random papers was one thing. Shredding the Bible was blasphemous. Henry's wife urged the attorney to file an appeal under the sanity statute, and Henry was transferred to Eastland Prison for a sanity hearing. He fought and flailed and resisted the transfer, screaming and yelling about being touched. It took four men to bring the flailing prisoner into the courtroom for his trial. The attendants in the courtroom gasped at his entrance. 
He was animalistic in his appearance and actions. Mr. Helms was once known for his chic style and clean look. Onlookers gazed with jaws dropped at the man in front of them. In an otherwise quiet courtroom, once they got Helms into his seat, he started in with his chanting. He rocked back and forth, muttering in low, sing-song tones. Some were so uncomfortable by his behavior, they ended up leaving the courtroom. It's reported that one person excused himself from the courtroom to vomit. Now that was probably because of his smell, to be fair. Helms would attempt to take papers from his lawyer's files and proceed to shred them, followed quickly by the lawyer snatching them back. And when things were too still and too calm, Helms would rattle everyone's nerves by shouting, Aye, aye, Captain! His hair was unruly and matted, his face unshaven, and his eyes switched from vacant to wild and crazed. Tired of the outbursts and shenanigans in his courtroom, Judge Davenport insisted that Helms be removed for a bath, shave, and a haircut before returning. Once again, he fought and flailed against the four men responsible for having him exit the courtroom as those present looked on with shock and sadness. On August 30th, one week before Helms is scheduled for death, they bring his wife to the stand. Henry was returned to the courts, clean-cut and shaven, but still insisted on rocking back and forth in his seat. To calm him, he was allowed to sit between his mother and father. His wife, Nettie, described how Henry was usually a devoted husband and father, but would, on occasionally disappear for days. Poor Nettie. What she didn't know was it was during these days of disappearance he was actually cheating on her or involved in other crimes. His parents would each take the stand and disclose that their boy had, quote, peculiar traits from infancy, end quote. Psychiatrists and doctors of all kinds were allowed to examine the prisoner and testify in court. One doctor, with a questionable degree, said he couldn't possibly be insane because, quote, there is not the foul order about the mouth which comes with swift and acute mania, end quote. And yes, even the alleged conversation about talking with Harry Leahy was brought up, but then stricken from the record. After days and days of witness testimonies, including not just the medical staff, but anyone in Helm's family willing to step forward, jailers, police officers, Texas Ranger Tom Hickman, all the greatest hits, but the judge was ready for the circus to come to an end. The jury must have been ready too, as it only took them ten minutes to reach a verdict. Henry Helms was of sound mind, and his execution date of September 6th was to be upheld. Henry stared vacantly into the distance, still muttering while his mother collapsed into hysterics beside him. Death row was set up in a way that all nine cells were on the same side, and as each prisoner, uh, went through the door, never to return, the inmates were all moved forward another cell. The inmate closest to the door was scheduled to go next. When Henry Helms was returned to the Texas State Penitentiary, he was placed at the cell closest to the door. He continued his insane behavior, chanting and pacing inside his cell, 
he clutched a photo of his wife and children to his chest as he paced. He made no other conversations with his other cellmates on death row. Now, even they were beginning to believe that Helms truly had gone insane. The remaining men decided to pool their money together to try and help him out. They managed to scrape together $150, which would allow Nettie Helms and her children to take a train from her home to request an audience with the governor to beg for her husband's life. Dan Moody, who was the current governor at the time, was known to give 30-day stay of executions to those facing the death penalty to help them prove their case. It was not going to happen this time. According to the notes of Helms' Summary of Execution report, quote, Helms had attempted to escape the death sentence by feigning insanity. Helms was declared sane, and on September 5, 1929, he went to his death in the electric chair. He had continued to act as though he were insane until notified that the governor had declined to commute his sentence when he dropped his act and calmly ordered his last meal, end quote. Which, if you're curious, was sausage, cabbage, tomatoes, and pie. On September 5, 1929, Henry Helms was allowed one last visit with his wife, children, and parents. As the time grew closer, Helms threw a final fit when guards came to retrieve him. He fought and flailed, and four guards drug him from his cell, past his weeping loved ones, and toted him through the green door. At midnight, Henry Helms was executed for his part in the Santa robberies from December 23rd, two years prior. Side note. The Helms family had spent every last dime they had on Henry's defense. They had none left to retrieve his body to bring it home. Henry would be buried at the Captain Joe Bird Cemetery on the prison grounds. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. The crazy bug had spread to the next inmate down. Oddly enough, that was inmate Old Santa himself, Marshall Ratliff. Even though his end date hadn't been decided, he didn't want to take any chances. It wasn't long after his friend's death, Ratliff began having trouble speaking himself. His words were incoherent mumblings, if he made any effort at all. He began twitching and losing use of his hands. And then, standing became a difficulty as well. The vacant look symptom was also passed to him, and before too long, Ratliff took to his bed and quote-unquote couldn't get back up. When Ratliff was incarcerated for, well, several life sentences, Rilla Carter, his mother, never lost hope that she might be able to save her son. If not here on earth, perhaps on the other side. She was a devout Christian and prayed for her son and wanted so desperately to change his heart. And she was running out of time. She would make the over 300-mile journey to come visit him as often as she could. She brought a wind-up phonograph to his cell with a select number of religious songs to play. 
Since he was on death row, they were allowed a few privileges such as this to help them pass their last days. Marshall used this gift as a solemn send-off to the men walking toward the green door. It became a tradition that on the final night of the inmates' execution, which were usually scheduled for midnight, he would wind up his phonograph and play the record when the roll is called up yonder to escort the inmate on his death march. The lyrics promise, quote, When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair, when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. End quote. Well, either Rilla Carter believed her son had slipped into madness, or she herself bought a ticket on the crazy train, realizing that this may be the only option to get her son off the hook. On October 23, 1929, after being on death row for 22 months, Rilla filed a request for a sanity hearing for her son. According to her petition, she wrote he had, quote, become insane on the subject of religion, end quote. Can't beat him, join him. She went on to say, quote, the parade of doomed men stretched over a period of 21 months has driven him insane, end quote. Newspapers had a field day. They had already picked up on the death march theme happening at prison. The Corsicana Daily Sun printed on May 24, 1929, quote, walks to the execution room to the tune when the roll is called up yonder, end quote. The Austin American Statesman printed on October 24th, quote, death march of 15 causes insanity plea of Santa Claus bandit, end quote. And in response, or perhaps reaction, Ratliff began repeating the phrase, Lord have mercy on my soul, end quote. Boyce House would write in his short story, quote, there for 10 days he lay on a cot, seemingly blind, paralyzed, and demented. Every move that he made was aided by the officers. He seemed helpless as a baby, end quote. Bless his heart. Well, it worked. Marshall Ratliff was removed from death row and sent to Eastland Prison to await an insanity trial. Eastland at the time was filled to capacity, so head jailer Edward Paxton implored his friend Tom Alexander Jones to assist him with some of the duties while it was so full. When the jailers brought Ratliff in to his new cell, he had been carried in by cot and deposited on his new bed. Paxton and Jones were given the heads up that they believed Ratliff was faking his paralysis, but also offered that several tests were done. They said that they poked his legs and arms with pins, pretended they were going to stab him with a fork to see if he'd flinch, and they also picked him up to see if he would try and catch himself when they let go. He didn't. He just fell. The powers that be concluded that it wasn't an act, but the penitentiary jailers warned them just in case. Across the hall of cells, another prisoner looked on. This was Clyde Thompson. He would later be dubbed as the meanest man in Texas, but for now, he was a 17-year-old on trial for the murder of two teens that he shot with his brother in cold blood. At the time, he was the youngest man in Texas history sentenced to death. 
He was at this Eastland prison awaiting for an appeals trial. Side note, look for this very interesting episode coming up in the new year. Thompson was considered more than a flight risk, so his keys were kept away from the jail stored in a safe at the county courthouse. Day in and day out, Clyde would watch the inmate in the cell across from him looking for glimpses of a ruse. He would watch as Ratliff's mother would come and visit, reading to him, having one-sided conversations with him. He watched as jailers Kilborn, who they called Pack, and Tom Jones, whom they called Uncle Tom, for affectionate reasons, not racist reasons, feed and bathe and care for the invalid. On November 18, 1929, Tom Jones was spoon-feeding Ratliff his dinner, while Pack Kilborn continued on their daily duties. He left the cell open while Tom finished up. Tom was getting Ratliff into bed and walked out of the cell. But this one night of all nights, he forgot to lock the cell. November 19, 1929, Dallas Morning News prints, quote, Marshal Ratliff sentenced to death for his part in the Cisco Santa Claus bank robbery Monday night shot and wounded his jailer, Tom Jones, in a spectacular but unsuccessful attempt to escape, end quote. Oh, yes, he did. He was faking the whole time. The story goes, once Uncle Tom, after taking care of him, left his cell and rounded the hallway corner, Ratliff jumped from his cot and gently opened the cell door. Clyde Thomas's jaw dropped, and before he could say anything, Ratliff placed a finger on his lips, asking the fellow inmate to keep quiet. Hoping for a chance to escape himself, he did just that and sat back to watch the show. Down the stairs to the main level, the exit to the street was still locked, but the jailer's office was open. Ratliff slipped inside and rooted around looking for keys, but found instead a loaded thirty-eight Colt revolver. Ratliff ran back upstairs and almost ran right into Tom Jones. Marshall demanded the keys, and when Jones refused, Marshall shot him point-blank in the gut. Jones reached for the gun, despite bleeding from his midsection, and the two tussled as they both slipped and fell down the stairs. The Dallas Morning News added, quote, When Jones met the prisoner on the stairs and Ratliff opened fire, his first bullet piercing Jones's abdomen, the deputy rushed the prisoner and got his hand on the gun as Ratliff fired a second time, sending a bullet just above Jones's heart. A third shot struck the deputy above the knee and shattered his leg, end quote. Ratliff got off two more shots that almost hit another jailer that had run toward the sound of the gunfire, E.P. Gilbert, becoming part of the fray. One of the bullets embedded itself into the ceiling. Gilbert managed to wrangle away the gun and turned it directly on the assailant and pulled the trigger, only to hear the click of the hammer fall on an empty chamber. Kilburn took over the fight as Jones slumped to the floor. Eventually, Kilborn was able to knock Ratliff unconscious by clocking him in the head with the butt of the revolver. Tom Jones was taken to the hospital, and Ratliff was drugged back to his cell. The keys to the cell were temporarily missing, but a search found them in Ratliff's sleeves. 
The next day, the Vernon Daily Record would headline, quote, Ratliff foiled in jailbreak, end quote. As Tom Jones fought for his life, citizens of the town began to gather around the outside of the jail, calling for Santa Claus to be handed over. By nightfall, estimates of over a thousand people pushed for and murmured of plans of justice. Pack Kilburn, there on his own, was a well-respected lawman, but the crowd refused to disperse. Kilborn finally came down to speak to the crowd directly, but they would not be silenced, even long enough for him to get a word in edgewise. Within minutes, he lost control. The crowd charged him and tackled him to the wall, stealing his keys and making their way to the second floor. Marshal Ratliff, already in bed for the night, was accosted and ripped from his bed and shoved person to person until he was out the front door. He was drugged and pushed completely naked down the streets to the theater that had a wire between two light poles. The mob tossed the rope over the connecting wires and tied a noose around Ratliff's neck. Amidst roars and cheers from the crowd, his feet left the ground and he fought against the tightening noose around his throat. He kicked and he fought until snap! The rope broke and Marshal Ratliff was dropped to the ground below. Not taking it as a sign that maybe they shouldn't be lynching a man in the first place, some went off to find a new rope. While they waited, though, the thought of turning the affair into a double feature appealed to them, so another group went back to the jail and went after Clyde Thompson. Thompson pressed as far back into his cell as he could to keep out of reach from the hands reaching out for him. Try as they might, they couldn't find a key that would unlock the door, so they gave up. I guess it was a good thing they kept his key at the courthouse after all, huh? Anyway, they returned to the theater. Someone had taken the tiniest bit of pity on the criminal and covered his nakedness up with a tow sack. The new rope was quickly replaced and the Santa Bandit was yanked up off the ground once more. When it looked as if he was trying to speak, someone in the group asked, what if he has something to say? They lowered the man once more, and he gasped for air, and in a raspy voice he barely whispered, forgive me, boys. The El Paso Times would headline on the 21st, quote, witnesses reveal that gunmen died mumbling prayer for forgiveness and mercy, end quote. The body swung for a solid 15 minutes before the Justice of the Peace, Jim Steele, demanded he be brought down to be taken to the morgue. Side note, the theater they decided to attend their vigilante justice just so happened to be showing a play called The Noose. November 20th, 1929. The Star-Telegram would write, quote, Conscious and knowing that Marshal Ratliff, the desperado who shot him, had been lynched by an Eastland County mob, Tom A. Jones, pioneer ranchman and peace officer, died in a hospital here at 11 o'clock Wednesday morning, end quote. Boyce House would write, quote, The next morning came one of the most pathetic scenes in all this drama of blood and tragedy. Uncle Tom Jones was dying. No hope was held out for him. He was conscious, however, and his friends were permitted to enter the hospital room and bid the faithful officer a last farewell. One by one, they came in. 
When Jailer Kilborn entered, the dying man said, I've stayed with you to the end, Pack, but now I've got to leave. His last words were of fatherly admonition to his young son, Be a good boy. And so died the last victim of the Santa Claus bank robbery. End quote. Hearing of the events leading up to the death of her son Marshall, Rilla Carter sent a letter of deep sympathy and apology to the widow of Tom Jones. As she prepared to bury her son, she also sent a telegram to Governor Moody requesting that her son Lee, who, yes, is still in jail, could be released for the purpose of attending his only brother's funeral. Not surprisingly, the request came back denied. Unbeknownst to her, Marshall Ratliff's body was put on display in the window of the Barrow Furniture Company. The Dallas Morning Star writes, quote, The robber's body was removed from an undertaking morgue to an adjoining store in order that it might be more accessible to the large crowd passing in and out to see it, end quote. Thousands upon thousands would come to the window to witness the morbid display. After a few days, and once Mrs. Carter, his mother, had arrived, Judge Davenport would put an end to the whole thing. Rilla Carter took possession of Marshall Ratliff's body and made arrangements for him to be taken to Fort Worth, Texas, and buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery on November 24, 1929, in an unmarked grave. To this day, his plot gives no mention by stone or marker who is buried underneath the ground. Following the excitement of the weeks prior, Joe H. Jones, district attorney and also the nephew of the deceased Tom Jones, put together a list of people that should be held responsible for the lynching, which is a criminal act. He called together a grand jury and had 75 people in which to call up, but the list was never made public. The grand jury was never called to assemble. In fact, the entire matter was hushed. No one has ever faced criminal charges for the lynching of Marshall Ratliff, and it is still recorded as the last mob lynching in Texas history. And one last story before we put this crazy two-parter to bed. One last quick break first. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. While all this lynching nonsense was happening, Robert Hill had escaped again. 
undercover police covered the area during Marshal Ratliff's funeral, thinking he just might show up there. But if he did, he went undetected. Upon his last breakout, he left behind only one clue, a note that read, quote, If you want to find me, you will have to come to Paris, France. End quote. Hint. He was not in Paris, France. He didn't even make it to Paris, Texas. By this time, Hill's jailbreaks have become legendary. He was caught once again and returned to the Texas State Penitentiary in February 1931. The Texas State Library website says of the Texas prison system, quote, Through improved conditions and accountability among managers and guards, former sheriff of Grayson County, Lee Simmons, who was once tried for murder himself, took over as prison general manager in March 1930 and managed to curb the escape epidemic. By 1935, only 71 prisoners escaped, just 1% of the prison population, and a 75% drop from the escape epidemic of 1929." During the brief stays he was actually incarcerated, he would send letters of apology to the young Laverne Comer, who was one of the little girls they used as hostages, and the other was to Woody Harris, the teen boy who was riding the car, and kept the keys in his pocket, ruining the bandits' escape plans. Apparently, Woody accepted his apology because the two stayed in contact with each other for many years into their future. On June 16, 1932, the Tyler Morning Telegraph would announce, quote, Jailbreakers, yet at large, six escape prison here early Wednesday by sawing bars. <laughs> he was caught once again, end quote. But surprisingly enough, Robert Hill was granted his freedom from jail in 1948. I guess they got tired of having to spend the man hours to hunt him down time after time. He eventually received a full pardon on August 17, 1964. After a few years on the outside, not actually having to hide, he requested permission to have his name changed, and it was granted. He moved away, still staying in Texas, rumored either being in Midland or Odessa, where he joined a church and eventually got married. His new wife came with a built-in family, and he decided... He liked family life. He stayed out of trouble for the rest of his own life. On December 23, 1977, Robert Hill and Woody Harris got together for a secret remembrance of the 50th anniversary of the original bank robbery. It said Robert Hill passed away in 1996, the very last of the Santa Claus bandits. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. It's stories like these I just can't understand why people say history is boring. Yes, I hold a grudge against my history teachers in my past as well because they weren't interested in passing on history, they were interested in me passing my tests. Two totally different goals. It is also very comforting to have found myself among many who feel the same way. We get to tap into a lot of different kinds of history here on the podcast, and I promise to never allow it to be boring. And, speaking of, we are only two episodes away from the big 
100. According to Slam Agency, quote, less than 20% of the podcasts that have been launched this year will make it to next year. I have worked hard to get the podcast this far, and I'm so grateful to each one of you for coming along on this journey with me. Next year is all about growing the podcast to new levels, and oh my gosh, I can't wait to tell you about it. I just have to be patient for a couple more weeks. In the meantime, I am super busy behind the scenes to get everything ready for the big celebration. And and by celebration, I mean you over there and me over here and cheering each other on virtually while we are all in bed by 10 o'clock. <laughs> 100 episodes. We're almost there. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.